Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And today I had the opportunity to talk to Jeremy Black about his book, Maps of War, Mapping Conflict Through the Centuries. It was a terrific conversation, and I think you'll enjoy it. I should also say that at some point during the interview, about a thousand sparrows managed to land right outside my window, and they would not go away. You might be able to hear them now. Sparrows are a persistent lot. In any event, I hope that you enjoy the interview. So let me say hello to Jeremy. Hi, Jeremy. Hi. Uh, Thank you very much for being on the show today. And I want to begin with an odd question. I noticed that you are Jeremy Black MBE. We don't have that in the United States because we don't have any royals. Have you met the Queen? Uh, Yes. I mean, it's an honours net system. I mean, you know, other countries have the same. The French, for example, have the same. So you don't have to have a monarchy to do it. And I was given the honour because I advised the post office for when they did, to, for the millennium, they did 48 stamps spread over the year um, to mark the previous millennium of British history. And they asked me to chair a committee to pick the topics. And I said, no, I'm not interested in chairing a committee. I said it was just wow, <laughs> and historians would just be... I said, either ask me to do it all myself or, you know, good afternoon and goodbye. And so they asked me to do it all myself. I mean, I'd written a history of Britain, which helped, as well as a history of England. And it, I found it enormous fun. And I also had to write the guidance papers for the designers because there was a different famous artist for each design. And I wrote some, though not absolutely all, of the uh, text that went on the first day covers. And, you know, they then have a little ceremony and, you you know, a royal sort of, you know, gives a little badge, which you can wear if you want. I mean, I don't myself, but, you know, it's somewhere in the house. And... Um, and they, you know, you have a little chat and, um, uh, you know, the, the, the Queen was, uh, was, it was in, she was interesting to talk to. I mean, the convention with the Queen is that you don't raise a topic. She raises the topic with you. Uh, that's to stop her being pushed by people to talk about politics. And she was very interesting. But one of the things I'd been told beforehand is, you know, when the conversation is at the end, Her Majesty, you know, will shake your hands and give you a push, which is the sign that you bow and move away. <laughs> and I thought to myself, well, how can a, you know, relatively, you know, slight person do that? Well, let me tell you, she certainly gives you a strong push, which is your time, sign to move on and for the next person to come along. But no, I, I enjoyed it. And uh, I don't think it hurts. I mean, I think that uh, it's much better to have an honours system, which marks, um, you know, things done for the country, than what often happens in Britain, which I'm afraid to say is many honours are sort of carted out for political purposes, or to those who are sort of politically, you know, acceptable. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a terrific story. Um, well, let's get to maps. I want to begin by telling an anecdote. I was teaching a class uh, that was about 20th century European history, and I was looking for maps to use, and I found a map that was produced in about 1919 by whatever commission was designed to uh, essentially remap Europe, especially Eastern Europe. And one of the things I noticed about the map is it paid very close attention to particular kind of what we would call ethnicities. Um, so you got your Croats, and you got your Montenegrins, and you got your Herzegovinians, and you got Macedonians, I don't know if I mentioned them, and different kinds of Poles, but France was all blue. (laughs) (laughs) There is, in fact, a marvellous book by a chap called Wilkinson on the problems of mapping the Balkans, and indeed, uh, it's quite an old book, but again, one of the difficulties of using ethnicity as 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 a means of doing it and of course, ethnicity was very much pushed with this idea of national self-determination advocated by President uh, Wilson at the end of World War I, um, is A, it assumes that they're homogenous ethnic blocks, which is not the case. 
and B, um, it uh, therefore leads, as so often happens, to uh, ethnic or sectarian violence. And you could actually say that this idea of the homogenous block, as opposed to, for example, using multicolored dots uh, to indicate uh, mixed ethnicities, you could argue that that is related to, it's not the sole cause, obviously, of much of the violence of nationalism. And as you know, I've been on your program discussing empire, and in a way, empires which sought to incorporate people of different ethnicities were much less harmful than the cartographic imagination of rigid lines and stark divides. So let's talk a little about the history of military cartography. I spent some time with cartography, and I, I sometimes go hiking, and I use these wonderful things called topo maps. Those didn't exist in the 16th century. They had kind of all that stuff had to be invented. Can you talk a little bit about the technology of cartography and how it fits into military history? Yes. I mean, let me say, first of all, that there are two types of historical map that interest me. One are maps produced at any one time in the past, uh, which I would call historic maps. And that's what we're talking about in maps and war, the mapping of war. And two, there are maps produced at any one time, including the past, depicting earlier ages. And those are historical maps. And as you mentioned, I've written about that in maps and history. Now, if we look at historic maps, um, one of the great problems is that much that we would associate uh, with mapping comes relative, and, and not, but I'm, not, I'm not saying that to Im imply any Whiggish progressivism, but just much that we would associate with mapping comes relatively late. So things like a fixed latitude, longitude grid that's uniform and accepted all around the world, things like the mapping of topography in terms of accurate contour mapping, being able on the ground, as it were, on the valley bottom uh, to estimate the height uh, accurately at valley heads, and then knowing how to depict that through isolines. Isolines are lines um, which reflect equal value at every point on the line. So you have that with an isobar for weather, for example, or with contours for, um, for, 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 for height. Now, the, a lot of this technology is 19th century. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't attempts earlier to, you know, for example, depict height, uh, but you tend to do that by shading or uh, hachures on, on maps, or you do what uh, was used, for example, the early 19th century, which is you often will put uh, a number on what you believe to be the highest uh, hill or mountain in the area, and so you'll go one, two, three, four, five, so on. And that's important because um, people were interested in trying um, to assess height uh, in order to gain the superiority from which to fire projectiles, um, cannonballs, for example. Um, clearly, prior to um, the importance of ballistics and prior to the importance of long-range firepower, and again, both of those, I mean, long-range firepower is really 19th century, ballistics, people like Euler, really 18th century. Prior to that, there wasn't much need uh, for, mu for much that we now associate with mapping. And my view uh, on, on maps and indeed on war is that rather than having some kind of progressivism and throwing around sort of words like revolution in that or all the rest of it and implying some teleology, one should take the view that most systems operate on a fit-for-purpose uh, notion. So therefore, it is no accident that we have far fewer maps uh, about war for the 16th century. And of course, the 16th century already had printing. We have far fewer maps than we would have uh, by, shall we say, 1945. In 1945, your purpose for which you have to have a fit system is to be able to direct operations on land, sea, and in the air, and for the sea and the undersea as well. Uh, you're trying to deliver projectiles accurately at some considerable range, and you're trying to get large numbers of troops and, and, and 
armoured uh, vehicles to manoeuvre often across quite large areas, often quite low density. Whereas if you're operating, say, a battle like Lutzen in 1632, uh, you've got close-packed men, um, and you can actually, from whatever is the local promontory, see the entire battle. You can, as it were, reproduce the battle if you want to produce it as an image, as a picture. And of course, a lot of the early maps of war are essentially pictograms or pictures of some type or other um, um, uh, image of of men in close proximity. And the same with warships, where ships are firing on each other at close range, or if they're using galley force, or, or in fact, obviously, uh, sailing ships as well, boarding each other. Whereas, you know, by the time you get to Midway, um, you're getting um, sort of warships that aren't seeing each other. And um, some years ago, for quite a few years, I taught a course at Exeter called Maps and History. And one of the things I tried... I think it was a unique course in the form I took it, because obviously I gave sort of lectures and classes and tutorials as one ordinarily would do. But on top of that, I, one of the exercises I set the students was to produce a map of something. They would have to discuss it with me, what it was, let's say the Industrial Revolution or World War One in Europe, and then crucially write an essay about what you would call a paper in America, but quite a long and detailed paper about the problems of producing that map. And I wasn't so much concerned by what you might call the quality of, shall we say, the line drawing or anything like that. That didn't bother me. What I was concerned about was the conceptualization and methodology underlying it. Mm -hmm. I I love this expression, fit for purpose. We don't really use that often enough in the United States. But let let me just tell another anecdote from my own research. Um, uh, So in the 16th century, the Poles, or whom we call the Poles, and the Russians were at each other's throats. And occasionally they would produce a treaty where they would stop fighting. And if you look at these treaties, they're not accompanied by maps because maps were not fit for purpose. What you see is when they demark the border is a list of villages. <laughs> because yeah, well, no, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Maps were not fit for purpose on the whole in the 16th century. And of course, there are also practical reasons for that. So if you take a, a classic modern form of a, of a boundary, that would be a river. Well, what one tends to forget is that most of the rivers we now see as rivers are really canals. They were canalized in the 19th century. In other words, their main channel or what was seen as their main channel or should be their main channel was deepened. Uh, Well, of course, prior to that, uh, most rivers had actually, let's say, a river like the Po or indeed the Rhine, had wandered across a relatively wide riverbed, um, often the riverbed in Europe, for example, coming from an earlier period of um, glaciation when there'd been more uh, river flow. And therefore, there wasn't a fixed river pattern or there wasn't a fixed main river channel. And, you know, it, it meant very little to say we shall follow the river X from what, you know, place A to place B. Um, so I think that's quite an important point. And the other thing is that people... Um, were identified fairly or unfairly, you know, from the perspective of, you know, the anachronistic perspective of modern nationalism, in terms of territories which often had a a feudal or other origin. And therefore, you would be proposing to, if you you were referring to Eastern Europe, you would be proposing to transfer control over, shall we say, what we would call, sorry, what they called, we don't use this term anymore, Livonia, Um, rather than uh, necessarily producing a distinct geographical understanding of what Livonia was. was. Yeah, it's it's interesting you say that, because if you look at early Russian cadasters from the 16th century when they first started to produce them, they are not really maps either. uh, They're on pieces of paper, but they uh, simply, they don't list what we would call land holdings that is enumerated in things like acres, or they call them versts. It's just a village with a circle around it, which meant that... Yeah, no, yeah. I think this is very important. And what we're talking about and, and um, is the way in which maps, which are an information system, like other information systems, vary through time. And one of the great problems, and you know, so other information systems, for example, are systems of measuring, let's say, monetary value or climate or time. There's all sorts of information systems, land ownership, as you just referred to, or, or distance and space as, as classic features of maps. Now, 
One of the interesting aspects of this is that much of the literature is either teleological, progressivist, Whiggish, whatever term one wants to use, and each of those terms has both values and problems, and therefore risks actually, well, it's not just risks, it is anachronistic towards the past. In other words, what people did in the past was automatically wrong, and we are automatically better, <laughs> which is a deeply, problem, I mean, a very problematic attitude. Yes. So there's that approach. But there's also the approach, which I'm afraid, which is a different one, but which is the approach which has been hijacked by the political left, though indeed at times you can see the same process being used by sort of fascists on the right, which is the idea that, um, that there is no autonomy in information, that the whole thing is a power structure, and that their job, as it were, therefore, is to deny any particular value. Uh, now, the problem with that is that there are geographical facts. I mean, you know, place A is um, further, further closer to the North Pole than place B, or, you know, you get iron ore um, uh, coming out of, uh, of um, uh, an area, uh, whereas you wouldn't get iron ore coming out of somewhere else. You know, there are geographical facts. It's not just a matter of construction and all the rest of it. And the same thing is true of maps. Yes, you could argue that the Mercator perspective or projection, I should say, you could argue that the Mercator projection um, helped Europeans, but it didn't inherently, um, you know, it didn't inherently and necessarily do that. And the major reason for it, as with any other map projection, is to deal with what is a autonomous problem in mapping, which is how do you depict the world, which is a three-dimensional space, slightly squashed at the poles, but we'll ignore that for the sake of clarity. But it's a three-dimensional sphere, which you wish to present in two dimensions. Now, whether the um, format you're going to do that is a sketching on the ground in the dirt, whether you're going to do it on papyrus, on paper, on computer screen, doesn't really matter. You've got the same issue of how do you select what to do. And one of the problems with, um, you know, a lot of this critique um, is the argument that there is no autonomy in it. Well, you know, one of the things I, I've had to do, well, I didn't have to do it, I enjoyed doing it, is I edited the Dawn Kindersley Atlas of World History. And in fact, I've played a role in uh, editing or contributing to other atlases of history. And that was really interesting for me because, you know, one had to produce the brief for each of the contributors. And then obviously one, uh, one did some of the maps oneself on top of that, and then one, you know, went through everything. Um, and there are practical problems. And it's not that there's some conspiracy in which, you know, underneath some bunker in some place in London or Washington, there is a Western conspiracy to affect the way the rest of the world it, you know, sees things. There are practical problems of projection, perspective, scale, uh, of how much information you can fit into a map, of how many, what you can do in terms of the number of colors you can use, of whether, you, how far you've got precision. And all of these are, you know, are issues that, um, you know, are worth thinking about. I mean, if you'll pardon the, uh, the language, I once said, to my students, and I don't want to, sh to shock anybody, but the problem of a data system is crap in, crap out, I said to them. In other words, if you're inputting data which has inherent conceptual methodological um, or other um, issues with it, then whatever form of information system you are then going to use will create problems, okay? But there is also the second one, that any data system, however accurate it might be, inherently there is only so much uh, in which a map or any other information presentation system can offer the granulated nature of reality which expresses the complexity of human life and indeed the complexity of other things whether it's geology or weather i mean it's not just human life that's complex mm -hmm. and, and i think to read a historical map that is a map produced by somebody in the past you really have to know what was important to the map maker and let me give another example from my experience with Russia. So these cadasters that had the circles on them that were villages, they sometimes had numbers on them. And the numbers did not represent land area. 
they represented the number of households because that was what was important. Because in Russia, particularly, land, there was no shortage of land, but there was a shortage of people. So essentially, the people were owned, and that was what was important to the tax collector. Well, How many people you thing. had? Yeah. Yeah, you can say the same thing about Doomsday Book in England. Again, I mean, you know, I mean, uh, occupying large tracts of territory, which you might just be able to, you know, sort of uh, um, soggy heathland is only going to do you uh, is only going to do you so much good. No, I, I mean, I agree with you entirely that this point is the the value of land is important and the value of people. And that's why, I mean, for example, you know, there's often talk about um, that there was some um, sort of military revolution in Europe in the 16th and 17th century. And the evidence that is cited for that is the percentage of the world's surface under European control by 1700. Well, of course, a lot of that surface was Siberia. Uh, and I think, I mean, you're a, you're a Russianist. I think the population of Siberia was roughly 600,000. And, you know, and even then the Russian control over people like the Chukchi in the you know in the northeast and and you know was very limited indeed. Um, but you know, it, in a way, what one has to do in those cases is rethink the map in terms of uh, equal area population cartograms, and you will realise that for most of human history roughly two-thirds of the world's population has lived uh, in East and South Asia. And, you know, um, you might add Southwest Asia or Southeast Asia to, to, to be absolutely certain of those two-thirds and really control over that or the imagination in those areas is absolutely crucial. And that loops us back to maps. You know, a, a standard account of the deficiency of maps is to argue that these maps um, focus on a given civilization. So obviously that's a, a, a fault often ascribed to Chinese maps with, as it were, barbarians out with that. Um, I'm not sure, I mean, going back to fit for purpose, I'm not sure that actually the Chinese in, shall we say, 1600 really needed to know um, who, was, who, was, uh, who was there in, in Siberia. And I mean, it's very interesting, I give a lecture on the art and meaning of maps. One of the slides I use is for the Hereford Map of Mundi. And the Hereford Map of Mundi, which is map of the world, uh, it's a TO map, so it's a, a big circle, and there's a T there, which, uh, which separates out the, what were understood to be the three continents, Asia, Africa, and, and Europe. Um, and, you know, it appears ludicrous. I mean, Jerusalem's in the center of the world. Um, Ireland, Britain next to it is just on the edge. You know, it appears absolutely ludicrous. But actually, think about how this map was constructed. Uh, on top of the map, outside the, the O, but sitting on top of it is Christ in majesty and pointing in one direction are the, those who are going to be saved, and in another direction, those who are sinners. So it's essentially a, 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 and it's generally believed that this map was the central point of a triptych, either um, the other two part, uh, leaves of the triptych being statues, or in fact, other visual, visual uh, depictions showing heaven and hell. And the, the point that is being made is that God, through Christ, is on top of the world, um, that also, and interestingly, a very significant point, that Christ um, sort of uh, possibility of people get being redeemed through Christ is offered not just to Christians, but it's offered to people who live in Africa or Asia who've never heard of Christianity. So it's a universal global account that makes sense in terms of the people that made that map. It was it was made in um, Lincoln Cathedral. Um, in the um, late 13th century, it makes sense in terms of that uh, of that map. And you know, for us to turn around and say, "Oh, this is ridiculous," I mean, you've got to understand that today we have mental mapping, and mental mapping is tremendously significant and captures a reality. I mean, you can be facetious about it, as with the New Yorker cartoon of the Manhattanites' view of America or the world. Um, but in practical terms, people respond to the world near them and at a greater distance in terms of their perception of it. What is their cartography of concern? What do they feel an affinity with? What do they think is safe or unsafe? 
And the actual map in the atlas or on the computer doesn't necessarily have any relationship to them. So, you know, for as we are seeing at the present moment, uh, you know, it's not my job to discuss American politics, but for many Americans, um, Israel is closer to them than Kurdistan is. I mean, you know, and I mean, in practical terms, in geographical terms, that's not the case. I mean, but you know, um, but this is this is how 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 one can see it. And you know, the same for all other cultures. I'm not having a, a you know, I'm not knocking the United States in this. The same for all cultures. Um, and you know, one can take, then take that a stage further by really looking, and this is very interesting, at the way in which maps that are deliberately fictional nevertheless have the capacity to create a sense of fact. And a good example of that, and there are lots of fighting in it, is J.R.R. Tolkien's map of Middle-earth in, in Lord of the Rings. Uh, there are also children's versions of this, um, you know, um, Winnie the Pooh or Toad of Toad Hall, uh, which ends, of course, with a great battle. Um, so that there is this sense that, um, that maps capture a spatial reality, even if that spatial reality is not graspable on the ground. Now, if we might just briefly loop back to war, and one of the things I tried to argue in that uh, book on war, um, a mapping war, is that there are essentially three levels of, of mapping. There's the tactical level, the operational level, and the strategic level. Uh, the degree, there's obviously a lot of overlap between those, um, and that these capture different issues and that there are different needs for maps accordingly, and that one shouldn't assume that there is a set mapping of war. And as you may know, I did a sister volume on naval war, mapping naval warfare and a sister volume on mapping fortifications. And I would say the same, so that let's say if you're mapping a fortification system, um, if you're the French government in the 1920s planning the Maginot Line, you're looking for a very different level of mapping uh, than if you're, you know, you and me deciding, you know, we've got a pop gun and, you know, 23 people and how are we going to storm um, this, you know, defended police station somewhere or other, or, or defend this police station somewhere or other. Um, so that, you know, you've got very different levels of mapping and needs for mapping. And the mistake is to assume that they're all operating on the same chronology or the same uh, of change, the same technology, and therefore the same analysis. And again, I mean, there's been a lot of very sloppy literature on the subject, which has, you know, I mean, essentially sort of pop exploitation books for the Christmas market, you know, let's do something on mapping war, and which have not really looked at these different levels and how these different levels have different requirements. And then on top of that, um, you can think of that there are other elements of mapping war. So geopolitics, propaganda. I mean, think of World War II. There are these astonishing propaganda maps which take all sorts of forms. Some of them are in films, like the films Capra makes, uh, for trying to explain to the American public, very much in line with Roosevelt's uh, radio broadcasts. And Roosevelt, of course, urged people to look at a map uh, when they were listening to his radio broadcasts, trying to explain to them why fighting in, shall we say, Europe or North Africa is germane to the Americans, uh, you know, this sort of thing, which was very important. Uh, you've got also the marvelous uh, aerial view maps, which uh, magazines like Life and Fortune and Time uh, produced during World War II, and also a number of the American newspapers, the Los Angeles Times is a classic one, had really very good maps indeed. And these were designed to inform the public, but obviously as well, they were designed to push them in a certain direction. I think it's fair to say that the maps offered a internationalist perspective and that uh, was one that obviously became American policy as a result of Pearl Harbor and Germany's declaration of war on the United States. Um, but I think it's fair to say that what it was designed to do was to suggest that uh, what might appear a long way over there is much closer to home because of the aerial perspective. And that was then taken further during the Cold War um, with, again, the notion that the aircraft has uh, sub subsumed previous notions of distance. And that poses challenges for 
um, how to map and how to interpret maps. I mean, you know, to map the Cold War is simultaneously to be mapping activities on the ground, shall we say, the Vietnam uh, conflict, but also a uh, missile race in which you can fire inter an intercontinental ballistic missile and hit your target with a reasonable uh, sense of certainty that it would arrive very speedily. Um, and distance is completely conquered for that. So, you know, there's all sorts of interesting things. And then a last point here, that then loops us right the way back to the, as it were, the medieval sense of distance. Because if you think of a great work, one of the greatest works in literature, uh, which doesn't, of course, come with a map, and that's St. Augustine, the City of God, there you have something that is very much similar to the visualization of the Cold War, which is the idea that the City of God and the City of the Devil are both there fighting it out over control of the earth, um, and that evil is an imminent presence, not something that's sort of nicely located at a long distance away. Um, so it offers a very strong visual idea without providing a map to actually identify um, the exact delimitation of these two warring uh, and competing bodies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we can sum up by saying that the map tells you a lot about what the map maker wanted to know and wanted to tell you. <laughs> because a map is an abstraction. It leaves most everything out. Yes, I think that's right. But equally, a map maker is only going to make it if they assume it's going to resonate with those who are to, to use the map. So to that extent, it's really very, very important um, as giving some uh, some sense of what is of interest to people, what they save, I mean, that's important, and what they use. And uh, society's senses of geography is something that historians tend to underplay. Indeed, I mean, I can take, I mean, that is in the Anglo-American tradition. The French are excellent. The French tradition is very much that if you're a historian and you know geography, that there is a, the, the notion of the payee is very important, uh, in the same with the traditional German historians with the land, of course. Um, uh, unfortunately, there is a kind of uh, almost deliberate level of abstraction now in the Anglo-American historical community. In other words, people endlessly talk about ethnicity and sexuality and uh, as if there is no distance uh, involved or no cultural distinction which should mean that you should be very wary of ascribing whatever are your fashionable notions uh, across time and space. Mm -hmm. No, I, I agree completely. Let's go back to something you said earlier, and that is these three levels, that is the tactical, operational, and strategic I think I got them in the right order. I think I did. You did indeed. Yes, yes. That, that itself has a history. I think it's a 19th century. It's a post-Napoleonic notion because there weren't really operations as such, the operational level before Napoleon. Can you talk a little bit about how that evolved? Yes. I, I, mean, mean, I, can tell you I mean, the operational level, I mean, there's a lot of discussion about that. And as you may know, it's one that's been particularly pushed to the fore in the last 50 years as people in particular have looked, I mean, you're a Russianist, as you will know, as people in particular have looked at Soviet, what's known as operational art in 1943 to 1945, and that was then discussed at enormous length during the Cold War, and that was then taken into Western doctrine in about the 1980s. So prior to that, Western doctrine essentially um, separated out tactics, how you fight a, um, a battle, if you like, um, from everything else, which was strategy. And now I think it's fair to say that, the, and that, you know, the general public would probably still think in those terms. And of course, the word strategy is now used all over the place. I mean, you've got these ludicrous books on strategy, which, uh, um, uh, I, as I joke to my students, you know, the next thing you know, you're going to have a book written by some learned professor on the strategy of how to pick up people at dances. I mean, the whole thing is just ridiculous. But the, if you look at strategy, if you look at 
strategy as a military activity. Uh, what a surprise. War should be thought of as a military activity and not an activity like, you know, war on cancer or war on drugs. I mean, how many machine, how many drug dealers are, were machine gunned in Philadelphia by the federal authorities last week in their war on drugs? I mean, you know, it's a ridiculous proposition. But if you're thinking of war or strategy as military activities, then the operational level is really campaigns. The tactical level is, you know, engagement at a lower level, battle, skirmish, whatever. And the strategic level is what is the what are you trying to achieve with this war? And it's the often the um, so to get, let me give you an idea. Um, if I was um, um, trying to storm the building in which my department is situated, that would be a tactical issue. If I have, have got um, 20,000 men and have to capture South Devon you know, by uh, four days' time, that's operational. If I am trying to conquer Britain and, crucially, to... Um, as it were, persuade, intimidate, coerce, whatever term you want to use, the population into accepting the new situation, that would be a more strategic question. And you can have armies that are tactically adroit uh, and strategically not. Um, and with the operational side, sometimes being adroit and sometimes not. So a classic, a classic example of that, you might argue, was Iraq 2003. Yeah, I was going to say, um, I think you're describing the United States after about 1980. <laughs> well, maybe well, after about 1960. Let me give you an example that might resonate more. I mean, there is an enormous amount of rather ignorant praise of the Wehrmacht in World War II and the Imperial German Army in World War I. Um, but the practicality is that however good they were at the tactical level, things like uh, laying gun lines to shoot up tanks, that sort of thing, however good they were at the tactical level, they were strategically appalling um, and in operational terms have been heavily overrated. And, uh, you know, I think this is very interesting. I mean, we could, it would be great to have a discussion about this because I've devoted several books to trying to explain in both World War I and World War II why there is and how there is this overrating of, of the German military. But I think this is, this is really um, instructive. On the map side, if you're looking at World War II, incidentally, the Germans did not produce great maps. Um, the, um, the really most impressive map makers were the Americans and the British. And, all, and they also had the greatest task because their militaries were operating around the world and also because they were much more active um, in long-range bombing and long-range air operations as well as more intensive operations at sea. So, um, you know, and many of their units were operating in parts of the world, shall we say, the Western Desert of Egypt or uh, Papua New Guinea or the Solomon Islands, which were very poorly, if at all, mapped. So if you're looking at World War II from the mapping perspective, I think it's yet again another perspective. I mean, obviously, this is part and parcel of the way that the Germans were so useless at the intelligence war and so useless at logistics. Um, it's part and parcel of a, of a wider question of the effectiveness of the Axis. The Japanese maps were not much good either. And I think this is really rather interesting because this is the kind of thing that people don't tend to look at, or more particularly, they don't tend to look at in a comparative fashion. Yeah, no, I think you're right. We had uh, Cathal Nolan on the show. I don't know if you've read his book, The Allure of Battle. And essentially the book is, well, it repeats just what you said. It's particularly about the Germans who in World War I uh, essentially embarked on a war that they probably couldn't win. And then they did it again. <laughs> and, and, and the thing about it is, is that there is this kind of cult of German arms, but strategically speaking, it was truly, a, a, both of them were monumental disasters. Yes, and actually, I think we can take this further because there is an interesting point here going back to this level of the strategy, the operational and the tactical. And strategy is one of my things. I'd lecture on it. In fact, I've, got a, I've done a book on strategy in the 18th century and I've got a general history of strategy coming out with Yale next year. 
And one of the points is this, and I would argue, and of course this is a very controversial point, and many of your listeners will object seriously to this, but I would argue that one of the problems in military systems is that you promote people who are tactically adroit and good, and you have lots of those going in, and they're brave, and they have, you know, that's marvellous. You promote them to operational command, and which many of them are not good enough for. And then, of course, you take those who are good enough at operational command and you promote them to strategic level. And, you know, they're often not up to it. But you can then take a broader question. The fact that you, um, you know, in essence, strategy is a political issue. I mean, you know, you don't have to go back to old Clausewitz. Strategy is a political issue. How you maintain coalitions of support domestically and internationally, how you define feasible goals, how you prioritize between particular tasks and commitments. These are all ultimately strategic issues of political preference. So if you look at, if you're thinking about the United States, you know, uh, the actual prime strategic mistake of the 2000s was to uh, neglect the extent to which the American achievement, I mean, wasn't just uh, helped by, it was helped by what the other players were doing, but the American achievement of the 1970s, which was to profit from the Sino-Soviet split and to obtain and secure an alliance with China, which dramatically weakened the Soviet Union, that advantage was completely lost, uh, unwound in the 2000s. And, you know, that was the basic, that's far more important than who's blowing up who in some backwater in Iraq. But the problem was that strategy shrunk to a matter of military tactics, or at the best, operational level, rather than being broadened out to think in these wider sense. Or again, if you take the Vietnam War. Now, I mean, obviously, the Vietnam War, traumatic, lots of people died, etc., etc., generally seen in the United States as a, uh, a disaster, and of course, even more of a disaster for the Vietnamese people. Um, it's worth bearing in mind that if you contrast uh, 1961 and 1980, the United States and its alliance system was in a far stronger position in Southeast Asia and more generally. Um, in, you know, there was no longer fear of communist expansion. Uh, the major potential state that was going leftwards and which had the oil and which was really significant was Indonesia. And in 1965-66, the communists there were massacred and the nationalist government was toppled by a mixture of right-wing generals and the CIA. A brilliant triumph, strategically very important. After that, it didn't really matter what happened in Vietnam. The problem was that nobody was willing to disengage and say, you know, this is, this is now not strategically significant. And by, of course, the end of the 70s, the Chinese and the Vietnamese are fighting each other, you know. And in a sense, the strategic, the strategic advantage had been won by the United States. Um, largely because of factors that were not, you know, shall we say, military. Now, you could take it another way if you wanted and say the willingness to fight in, in Vietnam helped to make the Chinese think. But actually, I don't think it did. I think the Chinese were more concerned about their deteriorating relations with the Soviet Union. Yeah, I think, that, I think that's exactly right. I, there's, a lot, there's a lot I could say about all of this. I mean, one thing that does occur to me is, is that at least since the first Iraq war, I, I think it's been demonstrated that uh, the United States military is extraordinarily effective at winning battles. I mean, if you look, for example, at the result of the second Iraq war, as I like to, I, I think it's the most profound military victory in history. I, I don't know, I remember how many soldiers the Americans lost or we lost. It was several hundred, maybe. I don't, I don't know. But the entire Iraqi military was totally destroyed. But we're not very good at strategy because I, I don't know what the heck was going on there. I, you know, it was a yeah, we're very good on the battlefield, but beyond that, I don't really yes, know. I mean, one yeah. of the sad things, I mean, Saddam Hussein was a vicious bastard, but one of the sad things is is that over we, first weakening and then overthrowing his regime ended up with leaving Iran much stronger. Um, so strategically, yes, it wasn't brilliant. Let's just put it like that. Um, uh, and uh, I mean, there are many other examples. I mean, in terms of this ratio between uh, casualty imposed and casualty suffered, of course, you know, the Germans did extraordinarily well in Yugoslavia in 
in the spring of uh, uh, 1941. That was probably the greatest equation of that type. But they ended up in occupation of a country, much of which was rebellious, and having to have a third of a million troops that's more, you know, um, occupying it and to little effect. Um, so that in a way, battle itself has to be inserted into wider understandings of both military and political strategy. Um, and if you don't do that, now, I mean, obviously, Hitler was an appallingly stupid strategist, as well as being a vicious man. He was an appallingly stupid strategist. Um, but it has to be said that the generals of the Wehrmacht weren't much better. They managed after the war to say, who, me, I wasn't responsible kind of thing. Um, but of course, they were actually, many of them, directly linked to many of these stupid decisions, as well as the genocidal attitudes towards Jews and others. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So I want to go back, I keep going back to this operational level, and uh, to look at it in the long term, if that's possible, um, that the, the operational level kind of emerges after the moment at which, and I, I think of Napoleon when I think of this, that Europeans started to divide their armies, that suddenly maneuver on the battlefield in large units was possible, and therefore the operational level emerged. I don't know if that's correct or not, but how is it, if it is, how is it reflected in maps, military maps? Okay. Can I, yeah. can I, let's talk about maps in a second. Can I say, I actually think the operational level is there from way, way earlier. I think once you have large armies, so you've got that with Han China, for example, as well as with obviously ancient Rome. Uh, once you have large armies and you have separated separate units, I mean Alexander the Great has separate units on you know operating in different areas. Then you have to consider how um, to uh, how these should operate, how they should co combine. Are you going to have sequential or simultaneous uh, attack patterns? So time is part of space, and as Probably, what well, we really don't know much about what, how people mapped in that period, but they probably, I mean, I'll use the Americanism, we call it the earth, but the dirt, they probably had a stick and drew it on the, the, the dirt. Oh, there's nothing wrong with that, nothing wrong with that. And that was probably their way of establishing. And, you know, most, um, there's, you, you probably know this, there's this great American publication series, the History of Cartography, comes out of the um, University of Chicago, and it did a very interesting volume many years ago on um, essentially sort of non-major societies and their mapping. And, you know, it was struggling because obviously there's only very relatively limit, limited amount that survives in terms of physical artifact. But the point they're making, often by using um, uh, written sources in which people re re uh, refer to how, to the, you know, their contact with these societies, you know, much later Westerners, is that it's quite clear that people did draw maps in the dirt, that they may well have also, for example, um, painted something or marked something on bark or other such methods. So people clearly had a way of saying, um, you know, you, you move on this side of the mountains and we'll move on that side of the mountains and we'll meet at the pass, you know, as it were. They clearly had some way of, of expressing that. Uh, most of that expression would almost certainly have been verbal, uh, but there was possibly and probably in the case of some societies an ability to also depict that. Um, and um, that shouldn't surprise us. Now, um, if you want to take that a stage further, an operational map is best if you can indicate the lines that you want to move or the lines that you think your opponent is going to move along against a background of the map of the area in question. And that map should ideally show coastline, rivers, major fortresses and mountains. And there is no doubt that maps of that type um, existed uh, the Putinger work of, you know, the way it's a later copy for the Roman Empire, of course, indicates just such a map. Um, the chi uh, Chinese uh, sort of mapping, certainly by uh, the uh, first millennium CE, offers maps of that type. So one assumes, therefore, that somebody would point at this map and say, you know, this is the way we're going, indicating with their finger or with a marker of some type or other. Um, and 
in a sort of command system in which you don't require a massive duplication of instructions and you don't have the means to produce a uniform standard uh, instruction, that's probably enough. Now, what, where this changes, obviously, is once you get to printing, you can run off many copies of the same image. Now, they're not precisely the same. Everybody knows that if you use copper plate, the copper eventually gets softer. But nevertheless, essentially, these are the same images. And given that that is the case, it would then be easier to say, um, uh, you know, to send somebody a, a, a letter or a, a courier, um, an air courier, to say, to say um, I want the third division to move to the east of the hill. And somebody is going to be able to understand what that means, even if they are not physically yet reached the hill, if you see what I mean. Now, and we know, I mean, I take battlefield tours of the Peninsula War, you know, so 1808, 1813, and there were maps available both in Paris and in London for the two major non-Spanish competents. And you could take those maps with, and those maps would show you where the rivers are, the towns, the major mountains or hill ranges of Spain. And you could then understand from that the detailed instructions you received. And that would be absolutely fine at the operational level. Now, where those maps didn't exist in the early 19th century is for much of the world. We found no evidence of them, and certainly the Westerners didn't have them, and they certainly didn't have accurate maps for things like the interior of Africa, for example. So mapping there is part of the imperial process, and um, a lot of effort is put into mapping. And incidentally, we're talking about on land. I mean, it ought to be mentioned that a lot of effort is put into mapping at sea, sounding waters, producing reliable charts, and of course, providing, for example, Charles Darwin with his opportunity to go to the Galapagos. I mean, the Beagle is not just wandering around the world to provide a sort of footnote for some evolutionary textbook. It's actually there uh, because the Royal Navy, after 1815, its two major tasks are suppressing the slave trade and charting the the uh, you know the oceans of the world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, uh, I, this is an odd question, and I'm not sure you have the answer. At what point do we actually see grid coordinates? Because you know the United States military has uh, essentially grid coordinates. They use this system. I, I know it uh, for for I think most of the world now. They can get you down to the meter level. In oh, yeah. well, grid coordinates, yeah. uh, grid coordinates, what's known as a graticule, all right? Grid coordinates come in quite early with printing. I mean, for example, Mercator is using them, and you can see them in Ortelius's world maps. But obviously, they, they are not at the level um, that, um, that would give you the precision that the United States military want at the moment. The precision you want at the moment is that if you fire a shell projectile or rocket, you want it to land at a precise spot and not 200 yards in another direction. And of course, that is the precision that was necessary um, in World War One. That was the whole point of developing these very accurate trench maps and the aerial uh, reconnaissance. You do sometimes get uh, very detailed grid maps earlier, but they tend to be not part of a universal global system, which is what you're talking about with the American military. But, for example, very precise grid maps of things like cities. So you can see very precise maps um, in the age of early age of printing, let's say 16th, 17th century for London or Paris or Venice or Madrid. And um, they, these are giving you really, you know, uh, excellent maps. Um, but that is not part of a universal system. And, you know, in terms, in terms of universal systems, the, you know, you we're talking about war, the military, again, play the key role. So, for example, in Britain, the Ordnance Survey really maps 
um, starts the mapping of Britain in the late 18th century and begins with the southeast of England and then moves on to the southwest because they're fearful of invasion, first by the French revolutionaries and then by Napoleon. There is a specific purpose. In the United States, the military are the key mappers of the mid-19th century. Now, it's linked to entrepreneurial interests and, you know, senators like, what's his name, Benson or Benson of Missouri who want to, and Fremont and, you know, the people that want to spread railways and American control, etc., etc. Um, there is, but there is an underlying military purpose, and these maps are to be extraordinarily useful and important um, during the American Civil War. So the military provide the engineering skill um, and also the organisation. Um, I mean, if you look, I referred to the Ordnance Survey. There were lots of maps of England before the Ordnance Survey. Lots and lots of maps, entrepreneurial publishers produced maps, but they tended to be maps. I mean, Christopher Saxon is trying to do every county in England, doesn't succeed. But essentially, the entrepreneurial publishers Saxons in the 16th century, the entrepreneurial publishers of the, say, 18th century are doing, are selling them to the gentry of particular counties. They're not producing a uniform national map. And the uniform national map, which is really a global model because you can extend that scale idea. So the Ordnance Survey in England did one inch to the mile, two and a half inches to the mile, six inches to the mile. These are really by the standards of the age. Uh, we're talking about the 19th century. Ordnance Survey starts off at the very end of the 18th, but most of the mapping is 19th century. We're talking about a very precise template. And the British then roll out their template by uh, establishing subsidiary uh, cartographic uh, uh, branches in places like Cairo um, in order to map sections of the empire. And I mean, in a sense, the French and the, you know, the Americans do the same. I mean, if you're looking at American mapping of, shall we say, the Philippines, um, you know, it's primarily, um, you know, for, for military purposes and by military personnel. Um, so that you, you know, that military side is very, very significant. Um, and it's there because what you're doing is you're creating a map as a potential. I think this is very important that pre-war activity, whether it's training, procurement, uh, the development of information systems and their utilization is absolutely crucial to wartime. And all too often, you know, books on wars uh, underplay. They write about the causes of the war, but they underplay the absolute significance of the pre-war, in particular, of the development of the information systems. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's fascinating. I, w I want to circle back and I, w I guess I want to continue on the uh, topic of the British Empire and British mapping. I was looking before the interview at uh, some maps of the British Empire, and I happened upon some maps of the British Commonwealth. And I was wondering if you knew who was in charge of keeping those maps, because it must be a very difficult job, because countries keep coming in and going out and being suspended. <laughs> and there's just all manner of changes that are happening all the time. Is it like a cardiogram? Well, there is an offer. This is very true because there is the, the, the Commonwealth Secretariat is on Pall Mall, and I walked past it two weeks ago, and they had a photo on the front of the Commonwealth leaders at some recent conference, and I noticed that for Britain they had the last Prime Minister, Mrs. May, rather than the present, present one. And Mrs. May has not been airbrushed out. So, uh, yes, yes. I mean, I mean, the Commonwealth is an interesting example of a sort of, in a sense, a virtual reality. I mean, you know, you can, I mean, the, you know, it didn't measure up to what the British had hoped for it. And, um, you know, we tend to look at Suez as a classic example of the failure where the Canadians, of course, were totally against British policy and uh, uh, places like um, Ceylon, or as it now is Sri Lanka, refused to allow Britain to use the naval bases. But in practical terms, uh, th this issue had been the case uh, earlier on. I mean, 
at the time of the Munich crisis, the Canadians made it absolutely clear they didn't want to get involved. And for Britain, it would have been, you know, really pretty well impossible to have fought a war of that type. And then you go right back to the Chanak crisis in 1922, when, as you may recall, the, I don't mean you're that old, Marshall, the, 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 Tur- the Turks under Ataturk uh, were um, trying to um, overthrow the uh, Treaty, uh, you know, there was the uh, the Treaty of um, the, the 1920 Treaty, and they would they were moving towards the British forces that were in occupation under the post World War One agreement uh, at uh, uh, at the Dardanelles and the Bosphorus. And, you know, the the government, the Lloyd George government, uh, thought of going to war to defend the treaty situation. And I think in the Commonwealth, only Newfoundland said, which was then a separate colony to Canada, separate crown colony, said that it would agree. And everybody else said, forget it. And um, actually, there was one more than Newfoundland, but I have to look what what that is up. And, you know, the British government decided, right, that's it, chaps. I mean, you know, we'll let the uh, we'll let Ataturk uh, tear it up. And that's why you've got the difference between the Lausanne and Sevres uh, treaties, uh, you know, uh, ending World War One in, in that part of the world. So, the, you know, I mean, one of the things I do, find, I mean, I, you probably don't know this, but I've also did a book, Indiana published it on geopolitics. And I'm, I think that mapping is very important to geopolitics, because I think um, you've got either a real understanding of space, i.e. as it is spatial considerations on Earth, as it is, or you've got the mental mapping, and the two of them overlap, and with geopolitics very much is the case, because geopolitics captures, and I use geopolitics to capture the idea that there is a rhetoric of the geography of power, and that rhetoric needs to be understood. And one of my sort of, you know, I mean, who knows, one might get knocked over by a bus this afternoon, But what I mean trying to do in my scholarship is to argue repeatedly, and I would argue the same thing with war, with international relations, that without going down, you know, the, you know, the left wing uh, idea or sometimes you get right wing right wing is saying the same it tends to be on the left without going down the left wing idea that things like the balance of power geopolitics um you know war are just simply constructions of power systems i think that's far 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 too crude without going down that idea one has to accept that rhetoric plays an enormous role in understanding how contemporaries perceive what they see as necessary and how they explain that to themselves and others. And in a way, that's one of my interests in uh, geopolitics and in mapping. Uh, you know, I'm interested in the practicalities of mapping because I've done it. I mean, you know, I, as I said, I've uh, edited an atlas of world history. I've done a couple of atlases of, of other things, you know, historical atlases of other things. I'm interested in the practicalities of it, but also I'm well aware that there are issues in uh, choice and depiction of, uh, and in also the contextualization of information, which helps to mold their use or understanding. Well, from your lips to God's ears, as they say. I don't know if they say that anymore, but I say it. So I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> In any event, Jeremy, we've taken up a lot of your time, and I really appreciate it. We love having you on the New Books Network. You're always fascinating, fascinating to listen to. Um, and so I want to thank you for being on the show. I enjoyed it immensely, and best wishes to the network. All right. Thank you very much.